mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. We're here in studio with a guest from just right down the road here in West Tennessee. I'm happy to invite, uh, to have with me, Wes Preback. Wes, uh, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, man. Thank you for having me. And so we're going to talk a little about your, I guess, unique path to uh, a career in the natural resources field. Uh, we're, part of that is going to be a discussion, brief discussion about some some uh, master's research that you did here recently and, and completed about factors that are influencing hunter success and mallard harvest in the in the Mississippi flyway. So we're going to get to get to that in a minute. But you know, this was a you and I have known one another for a few years. We ran into one another at a recent science symposium, and I asked you, it was, it was actually here in Memphis, and I asked you at that time if you'd ever been to the DU headquarters, and you said no. And I was like, well, where do you live? And you're like, well, West Tennessee. I'm like, well, you need to, <laughs> need to come by. And so as oftentimes happens whenever I invite people to come by, if they have some interesting information to share on the podcast, we find a way to sit down in the studio. And so congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, so yeah, tell us a little bit about your unique path that I that I referenced. You've you've already fulfilled one one career in your life. Tell us about that. That's correct. I uh, retired about three years ago from a career in law enforcement in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, about halfway through that career, just uh, on the far side of halfway there, I decided that I didn't want to do it when I got to retirement eligibility anymore, and I went to college. Ended up uh, doing the online program with Fisheries and Wildlife Science at Oregon State. Got my undergrad and applied to graduate school with uh, Dr. Bruce Duggar from OSU. Uh, he's a pretty, pretty well-known fellow in the waterfowl community. Ended up uh, getting a graduate certificate and uh, finished up my master's with Dr. Duggar. So a couple of things. First, thanks for your service as being a first responder. That would have been, you said you finished up a 20-year career. So you would have started, been right around the start of your career around uh, September 11th incident, right? Uh, about a year before that. I started in yeah. March of 2000 and retired in February of 2020. 20. That's a heck of a time to, to come in. I would imagine, my guess is that the events of that day probably bolstered your resolve to be in that field. Am I, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, thank you for that. The other thing that I'll, that I'll kind of, I guess, offer some clarification on, you said OSU. We're yeah. talking about Oregon State. That's correct. Not, Oregon State. Not, not Ohio State. Not or, nor Oklahoma State. No, sir. So, uh, yeah, Oregon State. But you're here in, in West Tennessee, and I, for the longest time, I was thinking that you had kind of uh, gone to Oregon State and spent some time there on campus, but that's not the case. You're actually, you enrolled in one of these new kind of, I guess, seem to be relatively new, these remote learning programs. Uh, tell us a little bit about that for people that may, may be curious. Uh, well, I looked around for a degree program. Um, Decided that wildlife suited me. I'd always liked the outdoors. I've been a hunter for most of my life and uh, came across Oregon State's e-campus option. And uh, it sounded like it'd be a good fit. Uh, you know, married with four kids when I started college and uh, 
it didn't get any easier, uh, working shift work and everything, but uh, having an online option was really uh, great for my situation. And uh, it, the the program was really good. Um, Dr. Duggar said that, to his knowledge, I am the first person to go through undergrad, the grad graduate certificate program, and the PSM all through the eCampus. So that was kind of a, a neat thing to find out when I graduated last year. Um, after I retired, we uh, we my wife wanted to get out of the city. The the uh, Louisville has become quite uh, quite different than the city she grew up in, and we found a small little farm uh, in West Tennessee near the Tennessee River, and uh, it's it's been really nice living there. We have a small hobby farm with uh, some goats and a couple of cattle and. Just the, the normal things you'd find on a farm. Did you grow up in in this area, West Tennessee? What What about your kind of upbringing? Where did that happen? Well, uh, my dad worked for the federal government, and I lived in four states for uh, in the first two years of my life. Uh, kind of settled in Alabama, my, uh, in rural Alabama, back in the eighties. My parents split up and uh, moved to Lexington and finished high school there, and then moved to Louisville. And uh, that that's pretty much. Uh, I moved back home. That's what I consider. I, I'm not back in rural Alabama, but I'm, I'm close enough. It's a good, you know, Tennessee's a good uh, spot between yeah. Alabama and Kentucky. And uh, while Louisville's my adopted hometown, I uh, I do miss it on, from time to time, but I really enjoy where I live now. But it's not an area that's necessarily foreign to you. It's probably similar to the way I view it. I grew up in North Mississippi and, and Memphis was within a couple of hours of where we, we grew up. And so, um, yeah, it, it's feels like home. It's not home, but it, it in terms of where we grew up, but it feels like it. It, it does. We considered moving even as far out as Alaska, and honestly, my now, wife— that would not have been home. No. <laughs> and, and my wife was willing, and, and my son really encouraged it because he really wants to hunt stuff like, you know, moose and cow, or moose and elk. And But uh, at the end of the day, I felt more comfortable in this environment. I've been in the Southeast my whole life, and— even moving out to the Plain States or Alaska, where the environment, the ecosystems are completely different, the hunting's different, the landscape's different, and while it's it's not someplace I grew up, it's it's very close. Uh, how long have you been a duck hunter? I I don't think it's your entire life, but kind of give us a bit of the background on that. Well, it's uh, I've told the story numerous times. I, I took a friend of mine coyote hunting on public land. Coyote hunting. Yeah, we, okay. we went predator hunting on a WMA in Kentucky, and he said, uh, "This looks like it'd be a great place to wood duck hunt." And I said, "Well, what's a wood duck?" And uh, we can fast forward now to I've earned a master's and focused on uh, waterfowl. And I have a, like most people, I have a lot of uh, a lot of shotguns and the boats and the decoys. And uh, even we've gotten into the dogs like you and I were talking about earlier. So I've been hunting 15, 20 years now of ducks. And uh, most of that's just slogging it around on public land up in Kentucky. Now, you mentioned coyotes. It's very interesting and humorous that you would have mentioned that. Did you Have you listened to our recent episode with Dr. Scott Stevens? I have not, not yeah, yet. Yeah, there's a strong connection there between that <laughs> episode and his use of a coyote decoy in his hunting, uh, in his hunting exploits there in, in Canada. And okay. so it's just interesting that this coyote theme and duck hunting continues to come up. There's something going on there, right? He didn't... You'll have to listen to that episode to kind of get the full okay. effect on that, what he was talking about there. But uh, uh, so that's cool. And then what about your your son? I think he also hunts with you, duck yes. hunts? Yeah, my son, uh, he got bit by the bug. I took him out uh, duck hunting when he was younger. He's, he's been going out in the field with me since just before his third birthday and doing, I mean, we've we've trapped. That's and the way to do it. We've trapped and hunted and uh, hunted pretty much everything he can except for stuff like elk where you have to be drawn. We just haven't been drawn yet. But uh he got bit by the duck bug when he was nine, uh, and uh, he tagged a uh, hen blue wing teal, 
with when he was nine years old, and I've still got the pictures. Uh, it's one of my favorite moments of being out as a father and being out as a hunter as well. And uh, he has just been there with me. I think there's been one time that I've been hunting without him, and that was on a, a paid pheasant hunt. Uh, so he's grown up as best as I could living in the city, and we didn't own our own land. And uh, we're just fortunate enough to have some place to deer hunt, and then we've we've duck hunted public land. He's he's pulled those decoys, you know, fifty pound sled of decoys, wearing his waders through ankle and calf deep mud right there with me the whole time. That's pretty cool experience, and that's a neat story. Now you said he tagged a hen blue wing teal. I want to make sure you he he harvested or yes, he was, no okay. no no yeah. he harvested it. Uh, we had a flock of the, the same gentleman I was speaking of that uh, had mentioned it would be good wood duck hunting. Me and him, my son, were out, and we had a flock of blue wing come in, and you know he he was calling the shot. They they go by as they do. Okay, one more time, one more time around, and uh, Brandon got three of them. I got two, and my son got his first. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and in his eyes, he certainly tagged it. Oh yes, he was. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it wasn't a drake, so we didn't put it on the wall. It uh, we, we you know he's still waiting on a feathered out drake, but yeah. uh, he got his first canvas back last year, and we're waiting on that. Yeah, it's going to be pretty tough to get a fully feathered, uh, fully plumed male blueing teal in Kentucky, right? Especially yeah. during early season. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I was just doing the math in my head there yeah. for sure. And but hey, there's nothing wrong with putting a hen on the uh, on taxidermy mountain. I understand all that too. <laughs> but I wanted to clarify that because when you said, you know, you tagged a, a hen blueing teal, we've talked to some people whose child's first encounter and what hooked them either on the natural res- in the natural resources field or hunting or with some connection to the waterfowl world is their participation in banding operations. And so that's that's another, um, I don't know if your son has had any chance, opportunities to get out and do any of that. Actually, uh, we've involved the whole family in that. In Kentucky, um, all six of us, my wife and the four kids, we've participated in goose banding events up there. And then uh, as of late here in Tennessee, I've gotten to know a few folks and, uh, well, uh, my wife and uh, son and daughter, the the oldest and youngest aren't terribly interested in it, but the the two middles, um, they band wood ducks with us. Um, my daughter has been out. She's good enough now. She can age and sex wood ducks on her own. It's at, at 16. She's had her hands on so many birds. So uh, it's, it's kind of a family event and uh, we, we try to do it as much as possible. That's good. Thanks for introducing your kids to that. We need more folks in the in in the field for sure and supporting conservation. Uh, we've kind of talked about your your first career, your upbringing. I want to talk get you to talk briefly about what it is you're doing now because you you have transitioned into a, another career and you're in the natural resources field. That's correct. I am a contractor for the Natural Resources Conservation Service here in uh, Jackson, Tennessee. I am part of the easement team. Um, the WRE, WRP easement team. I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with WRP. Here in Tennessee, we have a team that looks over those easements and makes sure that the, the rules are being followed. And we uh, we address any problems that the landowners may have with that and help do uh, restoration projects on them once they get enrolled into WRE. And uh, so that's what I do. I kind of joke around that I, I get paid to drive around on a four-wheeler in a swamp most of the time. And it's it's a very enjoyable position. That's not a bad deal if you can get it, right? Yes, sir. I, I'd love to talk with you a whole lot more about your day-to-day activities and what you do there. We're going to try to keep this episode pretty short here. Okay. Uh, we we want to talk about your uh, the research that you did as, yes. as part of your professional master's. Is it... Is it per, Profe- the, professional science master. Professional science master. Okay, I want to try to get that right. So we'll, we want to talk about that research. I think what we'll do right now is we'll take Take a break, and then we will come back and we'll finish out by talking about your study here. Okay.
Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Wes Prebeck, a, a friend who has joined me here in the office and in, in studio and who's sharing with us his, his unique career path. And now we're going to talk about uh, the kind of latter part of that career path, which is a recently completed um, professional I'm gonna, you're going to tell me again. Professional Science Masters? Yes, Professional Science Masters, PSM. All right, we'll get it We'll get it eventually. Professional <laughs> Science Masters. Uh, and under the direction of Dr. Bruce Duggar, good friend of mine as well. And so tell us about that. Uh, so introduce the topic that you studied. I've kind of teased okay. it early on. But so, so introduce formally the topic and then tell me why, tell us why that was of interest to you. Well, uh, the the paper t- was titled "Factors Influencing Mallard Harvest Within uh, Select Estates of the Mississippi Flyway," and uh, the reason we're looking at that, or uh, for my research, was uh, it started as a when I was working on my graduate certificate and uh, started hearing a lot of complaints, seeing a lot of complaints on the internet about ducks were short stopping. So I did a little research for my capstone project to see if there were any changes in duck distribution, and it, it turns out there were. There were some changes here in the flyway. Uh, ducks just weren't doing what they had done in previous years. And I'm sure most hunters are shaking their heads yes right now. Well, um, we went to a, a conference, Dr. Duggar and I, up in Canada, the North American Duck Symposium. Yeah. And uh, he had uh, he heard some other presentations involving the same issue. And he said, no, Wes, we, I think we need to stay on this Mallard project and uh, take it a little bit further. So that's what we did. We wanted to see just existing data that's already in the Mississippi Flyway data book that's available to anyone online on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services webpage. Uh, we took a look at some data in that uh, in that data book and to see how they those factors affected not only mallard, mallard harvest, but mallard success. So one thing I want to do before I forget about it is you know, you're, you're here in Tennessee, yet you're, you've teamed up with a professor at Oregon State. What was the connection there? Well, again, he was uh, one of the graduate advisors that was available, and we shared a lot of the same interests. So I applied to for the graduate program with him, and uh, through him, I've met a lot of different people here in Tennessee that uh, have connections. So that was just an online search for professional masters. Well, I, Oregon State. I, when I completed my undergrad there, uh, I, oh, you had already done that, right? Okay. To be honest, the the, the graduate certificate program, I was uh, had been accepted to there, and I could just roll that right over to the PSM program without having to go through any other application process or anything and it sounded like a, it would best fit my situation i see okay all right so sorry for that little detour That's i just okay. wasn't sure if there was another connection because i know uh, you were telling me that uh, uh, jamie Federson here with tennessee wildlife resources agency is also a former student of uh, of, of dr duggar that, that's and, correct yeah, that's, so. and that's how i met jamie and uh i think he fusses at dr duggar from time <laughs> to time for that introduction <laughs> Well, that's okay. Jamie needs something to fuss about every now and then. So, uh, so yeah. So, so carry on. Tell us a little bit about. So, then, what did you? How did you go about getting the data? What did the? Uh, what were some of the key? Th- how do you want to break this down here? I think maybe there were two key response variables that you looked at whenever you're thinking about waterfowl harvest. There's a number of different ways we can measure that. What did it look like in your in your study? So we looked at mallard harvest as an overall factor for one. Like and total total harvest? To, total mallard harvest. We just focused on the mallard because it's the most sought, sought after bird for duck hunters. Sure. And there's a, a host of other reasons, uh, not the least of which is a lot of hunting regulations are driven by mallard. Well, hunting. and if you didn't, the first question you'd get is, why didn't you study mallards? Right. <laughs> why are you looking at Pintel for? So... <laughs> We also uh, tried to factor in hunter success because that's a common complaint out there in the in the hunting world is uh, I'm not shooting what I used to shoot. I'm not seeing these birds. And uh, we, we want to be able to keep hunters happy. And uh, hunter success is, a, is something that's hard to define, but it is, it's a real factor out there. 
And so the the data that you talked about is available in the Flyway data books That's available correct. online. One thing that we want to connect here, and I don't if you said it, I, I missed it. That data that comes from Hunters, the Harvest Information Program. That's the, correct. It's a Harvest Information Program along with the other two surveys, um, the Parts Collection Survey and then the Hunter Diary Survey. There's kind of the, those three things kind of all work together to produce the data that you used, right? Yes. Okay, and so let's, I guess, let's start with total harvest. I know you broke a lot of this down by state, and we've talked about this before. We uh, kind of before we started recording here, we want to we want to try to avoid some of the real deep details right. for simple simplicity of the conversation. And so let's look at total harvest. Um, and I guess you would have done this across a suite of states. What were those states? Well, to limit the variables involved in this research, we limited the states to those that just had a, a majority of a mallard harvest that comes from the prairie pothole region, for lack of a better term. We, we call it the traditional survey area, but it equates to the PPR out in the Plain States and into Canada and Saskatchewan. And uh, those states were Minnesota and Iowa, Arkansas, Missouri, and Mississippi and Alabama. And uh, 84% or greater of those um, those states had a, a mallard harvest coming from that the TSA, and that those statistics come from some band derivation data. Is that right? That's harvest cor- derivation from from band recovery data. And so Tennessee wasn't in there. No, it was Illinois not. was not in there. No, Michigan wasn't in there. It's interesting that you know you you say that. And that's kind of where you drew the line. Jim Ronquist contacted me a couple of years ago and was asking me, he's like, you know, where, I was talking to somebody and they're asking sort of where is this split where the birds that we're harvesting begin to become more predominantly derived from the uh, from the prairie pothole region versus the Great Lakes. And I, I think I did a little bit of sleuthing on that data and the answer that I provided him was was identical to what you found. So it gives me a little bit of comfort in knowing, knowing makes, <laughs> that I gave him the right answer those years ago. Yeah, you know, it makes my me feel better about my research as well. <laughs> and so what were some of the variables that you looked at there? We're talking about total harvest across those states and wanting to, to kind of see if there's some variables that are responsible for, for that up and down that we would see from year to year. Okay, so we looked at uh, age ratio of the birds. Explain age ratio. Age ratio is just the ratio of the birds that are harvested, juveniles to adults. Okay. Um, we looked at midwinter counts that uh, have been conducted. We looked at breeding population numbers. And the the breeding population remind me we'll get on that in a little bit. That was a, it's very interesting. But we also did hunter numbers. Okay, across summed across those those states. Right? I know you states. did it. I know you did it at the state level, but we're just going to talk about that right. at that big level. Right. We did it at the flyway, and in this case, the flyway just means those six states that I, I talked about a minute ago. Yeah. And so you did this, I think, over the years. 2002 to night uh, to 2019. That's is that correct. Right? Yep, yep. Looking at that data, and again, the age ratio uh, is number of juveniles per adult in the harvest. The idea being that a higher age ratio is indicative of greater production during a given year. We've kind of talked about that a number of times, and that those age ra- age ratio data, which come from the parts collection surveys, the wing bees, the wings that people submit as part of those surveys, are what give our managers those data, the ability to kind of index what the production was in a given year. So uh, so in terms of total harvest, what did you what did you uncover as some of the more important variables influencing that that variation from year to year? There was only one model that showed any any type of uh, predictor for that and that was the number of hunters. That was directly related to the mallard, the, the amount of mallards harvested and that makes sense. If there's more hunters in the field, then there's probably going to be more birds killed. If there's fewer hunters out in the field, at any given point, then there probably won't be as as many ducks harvested. 
Now, I know we had talked about there were some different uh, relationships that broke out at the state level. Yes. We're gonna we're gonna skip over that for right now um, because then it, it gets kind of kind of weedy down at that level, and uh, and instead what I what we will do though at the state level is talk about hunter success, and those data come from the uh, the, the the parts actually I guess it would be the hunter diary surveys where people are asked to kind of chronicle their their daily activities out hunting, and and what's the what's the kind of the unit of measure on that. Hunter success metric? Uh, we defined it as the number of mallards harvested per hunter. Per season. Yes. Okay. And so you broke that down by state and then ran, looked at all these different variables, which were, what were those again? We have uh, hunter numbers again. We have breeding population, age ratio, and then the midwinter count. Okay. All right. So this is one of the, yeah, this is one of those where we often kind of go into this and I would predict that based on kind of earlier knowledge, conventional wisdom that for some of those Southern states, what I would expect you to tell me is that age ratio is important because that's, that's kind of the story that we tell a lot is that Southern hunters, a lot of times are more dependent upon a lot of production, you know, those birds coming down and still having a lot of young birds available for them. Were we, are we, are we anywhere in the ballpark with that in terms of the more recent data? Well, um, it's age ratio did influence some of our results, but uh, it it only influenced them in the mid latitude. Uh, Missouri and Arkansas saw models that uh, included age ratio as a as an influence in in hunter success there. And so, what was driving the uh, what was driving the variation in hunter success in some of those southern latitudes? The southern latitudes, uh, oddly enough, was a breeding population, but it's an inverse relationship. Meaning, if the breeding population of that previous year had increased, then the harvest decreased that year. That's kind of interesting. It, it did not match our hypothesis. Yeah. Did you and, and Bruce come up with an explanation for that? Uh, we think that it's likely driven by a decrease in hunter numbers overall. So that may be influencing the, the data a bit. Yeah. So the the other thing I guess is that, that I'll, if I'm remembering correctly again, it was 2002 to 2019. And so it's kind of interesting. It would be, I would wonder if you were to go back farther, if that relationship would, would have changed because over this time period, I'm trying to think what the BPOP numbers have done. Well, at least since like the mid mid-teens, they've, de- they've decreased, right? And so over, over that time period from, that you studied, did they, did they decrease overall? I believe there's a decline, an overall from decline. It's, it's headed that direction. Yeah. Did y'all think about going back even farther? Why didn't you stop at 2002? We wanted to stop at 2002 to uh, kind of a, a standardized thing with HIP. Uh, even though HIP was standardized across the nation in, in 1999, all the states hadn't gotten on board with it until 2002. It's actually it's pretty cool that you that y'all took the time to look into this. This is something that pretty much every hunter has thought about in some way at some time. Probably talked about in the duck blind and at duck camp. And um, glad that that uh, Bruce took you on and that you looked into this. And so it's there's some things in here that make some intuitive sense. There's some other things that make you scratch your head and it's like what's going on there. And a lot of times we get to this situation and we're like, well, we need to look into a few more things. Is there an opportunity for you to do any additional work on this? Or are you kind of are you kind of to the point where you're like the next step is some type of report or publication? Well, uh, we'd like to take another stab at a, a different statistical analysis to maybe account for the issues with BPOP. I've uh, 
working with uh, Dr. Duggar, and uh, hopefully we can get that that taken care of and published in the next year or two. Well, good luck with that, Wes. We appreciate you stopping in to share some of this with us. This is one of those projects where, you know, admittedly, we've only just sort of scratched the surface. We did that kind of by design. One of the, one of the things that we try not to do is get too far out in front of, let's say, the peer review process. If you've got a, a publication, maybe as a next step or something of that nature, um, we want to kind of make sure that we we wait till some of that comes to fruition before we get into too many details. But nevertheless, this is a pretty cool little project. You can take these different sets of data and look for some of the relationships that uh, that we all kind of opine about and wonder about. And so appreciate you you doing that and sharing some of these just sort of high-level uh, tidbits with us. Uh, also, before we let you get out of here, Wes, we want to give you an opportunity to thank all the different people that may have supported, the, supported you along the way. I don't know if you had any funding uh, sources, but certainly wanted to give you an opportunity to say thank you to the people that help make this happen? Well, Dr. Duggar, of course, is my graduate advisor. Um, we had uh, Dr. Petrie was on my, uh, from Dr. Dex Unlimited. Dr. Mark Petrie. Yeah, he was on my graduate committee, as was Dr. Peterson. Then there's some uh, some other folks from uh, Fish and Wildlife, like uh, Dr. Radicke, Jamie Federson, um, Larry Reynolds down in Tennessee. Um, Louisiana. Louisiana, Louisiana yeah. sorry. Yeah, Larry's down there. Uh, just a few of those folks, and uh, just like to thank everybody for their their time and putting up with my questions over the uh, the time I spent doing this. I know I can pester a lot of people, so thanks again for everybody who helped out. Well, I appreciate you taking the initiative to find a question that's of interest to you, and I'm glad that it intersected the waterfowl world. Um, we have lots of great data that we can apply to all these different questions. Waterfowl hunters are a key part of this data. So thanks to the waterfowl hunters that took the time to fill out the surveys, provide their wings, and do everything else that feeds the data that you were able to use. And so, Wes, great to have you here in West, Louis, uh, West I almost said Louisiana, <laughs> West Tennessee. It's good to be here. And uh, thanks for, for what you're doing now in your second career and uh, an important, vital part of the conservation community. Thanks for introducing your kids and family to, to hunting. And stop by anytime, man. It's been great to have you here. Thanks for the invite, and I've uh, enjoyed my time. Thank you. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Wes Preback. We appreciate him spending a little bit of time with us here and in studio, visiting national headquarters and sharing with us some of the results from his professional science masters. I got it. As, as always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work that he does on these episodes. And we thank you, the listener, for your time and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the ducks.